Amen. Thank you, Andy. And that is our hope, amen, as followers of Jesus Christ, that one day we will see him face to face. This morning, I'm going to talk just about that. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go a little bit different place than Luke. We're going to go to Matthew this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and this morning I kind of want to finish what I started last week in Matthew 25. But before we do, I want to say our scripture memorization this morning, because as a church, we are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. And we started in Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're continuing to memorize Matthew 5. And so what we're doing is we're just doing two verses a week. So hopefully you can memorize two verses a week of the Sermon on the Mount, and pretty soon we'll have all of Matthew chapter 5 memorized, and we'll move into Matthew chapter 6. And hopefully soon we'll have all three chapters memorized. Sermon on the Mount's a long sermon, the longest sermon Jesus ever preached. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But hopefully as a church, as we hide God's Word in our heart, He will use that not only in our life, but in others, because the Word of God will flow out of us as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's just do our verses. We'll just say them together. I won't say them by myself. You're going to say them with me. So we're going to say Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, and we'll do verse 18 as well. So you ready? Okay, somebody's ready. Only one person, but hopefully everybody else is ready. Okay, here we go. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear. That's a lot of mumbling. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Well, that was bad. <laughs> y'all got to memorize it because y'all got to help me on Sunday mornings. So memorize that scripture, and I promise as you do, God will use it in our life. Well, this morning, we'll look at Matthew chapter 25. Last week, as I was preaching on Luke 11 and preaching on what Jesus said about us being the light of the world, like a lamp, we are to be placed on a light stand so that we can give light to everyone in a house, not to put a basket over it to cover our light. So as we talked about that, I made a statement in that sermon. And that statement has really convicted me this week. And what I, all I said was that the church, and I didn't just mean our church, I meant the church as a whole. The church is just prophetically unaware. And what I mean by that is I mean that we as a church, and I include us in this, we as a church, we do not understand the day in which we live. We do not understand that we are living in the very day that Jesus Christ can return. We don't understand that. And I think because we don't understand that, we don't understand the privilege and the opportunity that God has given us. Now, I was not convicted because I made that statement, because that statement is true. We do not understand the day in which we live, and because we don't understand the day in which we live, we are not prepared for it. We are not prepared. All of my life, I've heard this statement, and I hear it a lot of times when people are in the hospital or when they're getting close to death, but I'll hear people say something like this. They say, I can't wait to get to heaven because when I get to heaven, I got some questions for Jesus. 
Or they'll say something like this. When I get to heaven, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to ask Eve, what was she thinking when she took that apple? And I'm going to ask, well, I want to know what Peter was thinking when he stepped out onto that water and what was it like to walk on water? And all these different questions in the Bible, people say, I can't wait to get to ask them that. But what I want you to understand, it is not going to be like that when you and I get to heaven at all. At all. The converse is going to be reality of that. Because when you get to heaven, you're not going to walk up to Peter or Paul or Elijah or whoever and ask them questions. They're going to come up to you and they're going to ask you questions. You know the question they're going to ask you? They're going to ask you this question. What was it like to live in the last days? What was it like to know that Jesus Christ could return at any second? Isaiah is going to come up to you and he's going to say, God told me in Isaiah 62 to write this. He said, soon darkness, as dark as night, will cover all the corners of the earth. What was it like to see that? Paul's going to come up to you and he's going to say, I wrote all through the epistles of the New Testament that the time was coming for Jesus Christ's return. What was it like to live knowing that he could return? Where did it change where you went? Where did it change the way you lived your life? How did it change what you said to people? Now, when they ask you that question, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Well, it was great. What are you going to tell Paul? Well, Paul... I was ready to go whenever God called me to go, but he just didn't call me to do nothing. I don't know why. I was what you call a bench warmer. I just sat on the bench waiting. Or are you going to say this? Are you going to say, hey, Paul, you don't know about this, but there's a thing now called the flat screen television. And I had a front row seat to it all. I sat in my living room and watched it all unfold. Are you going to tell Paul that? What are you going to say? The Bible says in 1 John 2 that when Jesus Christ returns, we will either be ready or we will shrink back in shame. So when you get to heaven, are you going to shrink back in shame because you did nothing in the days in which God placed you in the greatest time in history to live? He has given you the divine privilege and the divine opportunity to lead to His coming. But what I'm convicted of is not that we're not ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, but we're not even aware of it. We do not understand the day in which we live. We don't understand. So this morning, we're going to look at a parable Jesus gives in Matthew 25. And it's a parable that really concludes what he says in Luke 11 about us being the light of the world, like a lamp. And in this parable, we're going to see a lamp. And we're going to see some lamps that light the way for Jesus Christ's return. And that lamp can be you or not. There's a verse in the book of John, in John 9, that every time I read it, I'm convicted. And it just says this, John, Jesus says in John 9, 4, we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us, for night is coming, and then no one can work. No one can work. So this morning, I want to read about a wedding. So if you have your Bibles, look in Matthew 25. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 1. Now just the context of the scripture so you know where it takes place. 
These verses are literally just hours, just a couple of days before Jesus Christ will go to the cross. These are the last words he really is going to teach on this earth. This is the last sermon he will ever preach. Matthew 24 and 25, he preaches it on the Mount of Olives. So out of all the things Jesus Christ could tell his disciples and tell us, his followers, this is what he chose to say in the last sermon that he would preach. So verse 1. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At the midnight cry, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up, prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. Verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me. I don't know you. Verse 13. So you must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. You do not know the day or hour of my return. Now to understand this parable, you need to understand the difference in wedding customs between our wedding customs and Western culture and the day in which Jesus lived in first century Jewish wedding customs. Now today in our culture, a wedding takes place just in two phases. There's always an engagement phase of a marriage, and then there is a wedding, a ceremony, and that ceremony always has a reception. So there are just two phases in the United States for a wedding. But in Jewish culture, in the first century, there were always three stages to a wedding. Not an engagement, not a wedding ceremony, but three other stages. And the first stage of a wedding was always an arrangement stage of the wedding. And what an arrangement stage was, was the family of the bride and the family of the bridegroom would come together and they would make arrangements for a wedding. Now sometimes this would take place even when the bride and the bridegroom were children. Sometimes it would take place later on in life when they fell in love with each other and wanted to get married. It didn't matter when it took place, but here was the arrangement. This was always what would happen. The family of the bridegroom, the man, would come to the family of the bride and they would make arrangements not only to pay for the wedding, but to pay a dowry so that they could take the daughter away from the family so that their son could marry him. Amen? All the dads with fathers said, Amen, glory, hallelujah. So that is the way it should be in our customs today, right? I have three daughters. The oldest is 18. So in just a few years, I'm converting to Judaism. So you'll have a Jewish pastor for a little while till my youngest who's 10 right now gets married and then I'll convert back to Christianity. But that's the way it was in Jesus' day. There was an arrangement phase. And then after the arrangement phase, there was what was called a betrothal phase. And the betrothal phase is when the bride and the bridegroom would actually take vows. And they would just do this before family. It would be a small ceremony and they would make vows to each other, committing to one another for life. 
but they would not live together at this stage. They would just take vows. And then they would separate and they would go back to their families. And what would always happen is the bridegroom, the male, would go back and prepare a house. He would build a house for them to live most of the time at his family. He would add on to their house and they would go back and live there during this betrothal stage. This is the stage where we see Mary and Joseph in when Jesus Christ is born. They're in this betrothal stage. And then when it got time, for the bridegroom to go back and get his bride, he would start dropping hints that he was coming soon, that the house was almost ready. So the bride would have to be ready every night. She would have to put on her wedding gown, she would have to wear her makeup and her hair, and she would always have to be ready because she never knew when the bridegroom was coming. So she had bridesmaids, and the bridesmaids would line on the streets waiting for the bridegroom, waiting for him to come, watching so they could announce... The bridegroom is coming so that the bride would get up and go with her bridegroom and they would have a celebration or a wedding feast. And that's how a Jewish wedding would take place. But in our parable here, for whatever reason, the bridegroom was delayed. Now, the parable doesn't tell us why the bridegroom was delayed, but he was delayed in coming to get his bride. So the bridesmaids are out on the street every night waiting for the bridegroom to come. But something happens because he's delayed. What happens to them? They all fall asleep. They all fall asleep. And they were not ready for his return. And then quickly, out of nowhere, they hear the bridegroom's coming. So five of them get up. The other five get up and they start to light their lamps because their lamps is what announces the bridegroom's coming. It lit his way. And of course, in our parable, five had oil in their lamps. Five did not. Five were ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Five were not. And the bridegroom came. And they went into the wedding feast. And the five who were not ready eventually show up. But the door is locked and they don't get to get in. Now that's the parable. Now the question is, what in the world does the parable mean? Especially for us living 2,000 years later after Jesus Christ said this. What does it mean? Well, I want you to understand what it means this morning. Because honestly, this parable has eternal, eternal ramifications for you and for me. And this parable is not for the world. This parable is for the church. And there's two parts to this parable. The first part's just a warning. And I want you to hear the warning. The warning is this. For those in the church. Some of us will be ready for the bridegroom Jesus to return. Some of us will not. Now, if you look at our parable, there were ten bridesmaids in that parable. There were nothing to set apart and distinguish those who were ready and those who were not. We don't know which five were ready and which five were not at the beginning of this parable. They all looked the same. They all talked the same. They all wore the same clothes. Their hair was the same. Maybe they had the same color dress, whatever it is. I don't know. But they all looked the same. Nothing set them apart. All appeared to be equally prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And that is the most crucial statement. They appeared to be ready for the coming of the bridegroom. But not all were. So why were they not? 
Well, verse 5 gives us a hint why they were not ready. It says, the bridegroom was delayed and they became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, here's the problem. All ten fell asleep. It wasn't just the five who were not prepared and the five who were ready were ready for him and never fell asleep. But all ten of these bridesmaids fell asleep. So the consequence was not that they fall asleep. The consequence was when the bridegroom announced his coming and they woke up and aroused from their sleep and began to light their lamps. Five had oil and five did not. Now for the ones that weren't prepared, I don't want you to feel sorry for them. Because they had the exact same information of those who were ready that had oil in their lamps. They knew that the bridegroom was coming. They knew what they should be doing. And they knew that they should have oil for their lamps to light his way. So this was not a matter of not enough information. This was not a matter that they just didn't know. This was a matter that they just didn't take time to stop and do what they were supposed to do. So the most important question in this parable is what does the oil represent in the lamps. If you go read the Bible, all through Scripture, oil represents the Holy Spirit of God or God's presence. Tonight, when we pray over those who are sick, the Bible tells us in James 5 to anoint them with what? Oil. Why? Because oil is just symbolic of the presence of God. And when we anoint someone with oil, it is not our prayers that heal them. It is not our faith that heals them. It is just the presence of God. If God chooses to heal them, to heal them. And that oil represents the Holy Spirit of God. So what Jesus is telling us here, that those who have oil in their lamps are those who have the Holy Spirit of God in their life, in their heart. That's why the Bible says, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are indwelt By the Holy Spirit, or we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And there is only one way for God to live in you, and that is to know Jesus Christ as Lord and to call Him to save you. How do I know that? The Bible tells me. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this. He says, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ... He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. So what does he do? When we believe in Jesus Christ, he seals us or identifies us as his own by giving us the Holy Spirit. He says this later on in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.30. He says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has sealed you or he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. What identifies us is his own, the Holy Spirit of God. So in this parable, five had the Holy Spirit and five did not. But on the surface, we don't know that. They all look the same. They all sit in the same pew. They all attended the same church. They all heard the same sermon. But five had the Holy Spirit and five did not. I want you to hear something about this parable. Because this is really important, especially in a Southern Baptist church. All ten bridesmaids received an invitation to the wedding. All of them would have said they accepted the invitation. How do we know? Because they were all there at the wedding, right? They were all waiting 
for the bridegroom to return. But please hear me. Accepting an invitation is not the same thing as salvation. Listen to me. Walking the aisle of a church, making a confession with your mouth, even being baptized, is not the same thing as being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God through Christ Jesus. How do I know? Well, at this parable, five were in the wedding feast and five were on the outside because the door was locked. All five on the outside thought that they should be into the wedding feast. Why? Because they said, Lord, Lord, let us in. And the bridegroom says, believe me, I don't even know you. It is the same language that Jesus uses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. This is what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father, they will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, those of you who broke God's law. Salvation is not about saying certain words. Salvation is not about praying a prayer. Salvation is about your life changing and changing forever. Salvation is life change. And if your life is no different after you were saved than before you were saved, then you are not saved. Period. You're not. Salvation is about life change. Jesus says this to us, to his disciples. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up the cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will Save it. Pick up your cross and follow me. Give up your own way. That is repentance. That verse, Matthew 16, 24, is repentance. He says those same things five different times in the Gospels. Five times. That is repentance. Repentance is just going one way and turning and walking another. That's what we do when we're saved. We're walking in our life and in our sin and we're going and we're going. But we hear the call of God so we turn and we walk to him. Giving up all of that and calling on him to be the Lord of our life. That's why Romans 10.9 is in the Bible. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Lordship means giving it all up. Giving up your dreams and your desires and your sin and anything in your life. And following Him, that's salvation. That's salvation. It's about your life changing. And so how do you know that you're saved? When the Holy Spirit of God is in you. Well, how do you know the Holy Spirit of God is in you? Well, here's a good way. If you can sin... Do something that just the Bible says not to do. And you don't think a second thought about it, then you're not saved. I'm telling you, you're not saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God living in you is going to convict you of sin. Why? Because He's what? He is the Holy Spirit. 
And holy means set apart. And what is he set apart from? He's set apart from sin. So if the Holy Spirit is in you and you sin, guess what he's going to do? He's going to tell you, you need to get right with God. You need to ask forgiveness of that sin. And he is going to convict you of that sin. And if you have no conviction when you sin, you need to get ready for the bridegroom to come. You just do. How else can you know that you're saved? Well, when you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, guess what? It's going to produce fruit. Go read Galatians 5.22. Go read about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Your life will produce fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, just what Paul says there. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Your life will produce that fruit. Now, I understand it won't always produce a harvest. But it will produce fruit. Will there be seasons where you're dry? Sure. But if your life never produces any fruit, then what does Jesus say? You are not part of the vine. There were five who were ready and five who were not. Listen, if you're a statistician, those are not great odds. So what happened to the five that weren't ready? They just simply deceived themselves into thinking they were. That's all it is. Just self-deception. They were dressed just like the others. They looked just like the others. They said the same things just like the others. They even had lamps. But they deceived themselves into thinking everything's okay. And they never stopped to think for a moment that it wasn't and they should get right. How many of you in this room have ever run out of gas before in your car? Okay, a lot of us, right? How in the world do we run out of gasoline in our car? When we have cars that have a gas gauge and we have cars that beep and ding and say, hey, guess what? You're about to run out of gas over and over and over again. How do we run out of gas? Because we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I can go another mile. I can probably go five miles. I know I won't stop right here on the side of the road. It's self-deception, right? The same thing is true in the church. People deceive themselves to thinking everything's okay. Because my dad was a deacon in the church. Or I walked the aisle. Or I got baptized. Or I said a prayer. But their life is no different. Salvation is about life change. And this is a warning that Jesus gives the church before he returns. And I'm telling you. We are living in the days when Jesus Christ could return. So it is a warning. It's also a commissioning. For the five who were ready, for the five who had oil in their lamps, Jesus Christ is commissioning us. And He is commissioning us to do one thing. What? Light His way for His return. That's why we are called the light of the world. And don't put a basket over your lamp, but what? Set it high up in the house on a lampstand so that you can give light to everyone in the house. Why? Because those lamps light the way of His return. What's it going to be like before Jesus Christ comes back? I want you to see this because we miss this in Scripture. And we think it's going to be something different. And I want you to see what the Bible says. I want you to see what happens just before Jesus Christ is going to return. Look back at Matthew 25, 6. This is what it says. Verse 6 says, At midnight they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. So they were all asleep, all ten, not just five, but all ten were asleep. And they hear the shout, so they arouse from their sleep. But then look at verse 10. 
It says, but while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went to the marriage feast and the door was locked. What I want you to see there in those two verses is there is a lapse of time from the midnight cry to the time that the bridegroom actually comes. Now, we all sing the song at the midnight cry. And what do we think is going to happen at the midnight cry? We're going to rise and we're going to meet him, right? Well, that's not what's going to happen. This verse clarifies that. At the midnight cry, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be aroused from our sleep. That's what's going to happen. And then there's going to be a period of time. How long? I have no idea. But there's going to be a period of time from the midnight cry until he comes. Because what happened? Those five bridesmaids who weren't ready, they had time to go to the store and try to find some oil so they could get back in time. But while they were gone, that's when the bridegroom came and they couldn't get back in because the door was locked. There was a gap in between. Now, as the midnight cry happened, well, I don't know what the midnight cry is. And I don't know that it's happened. But I'm telling you this, you better be listening. Because this is what it's going to be like just before Jesus Christ returns. It's going to be like the beginning of the church. Just the same way the church started, the church is going to end. And how did the church start? The church started with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and then with persecution. How is the church going to end? With an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and with persecution. That's what's going to happen. How do I know? The Bible says it. Listen to Acts 2. Acts two seventeen. In the last days. Okay? So what days are we talking about? The last days. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and the signs on earth below. Blood and fire, clouds and smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of our Lord arrives. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's going to be an outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, but there's also going to be persecution of the church, of followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says this in this same sermon in Matthew 24. He says in verse 9, Then you will be arrested. You will be persecuted. You will be killed. You will be handed over to the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. What is the end? It is the return of Christ Jesus. And when will he come? When we're persecuted and when the whole world hears his name. And how will the world hear his name? For those who are ready to light their lamps and to light the path because the bridegroom is coming. That's why we're the light of the world. That's why we have lamps to set high on a lampstand so it gives light to everyone. Because he has placed us on this earth and he has called us according to a purpose to live in the greatest time in history. But the time is now. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 13, 11. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Wake up. Why should we wake up? One final thing. Because this parable, what Jesus Christ says, 
as he says, the door is closing. The door is closing. Look at verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went to meet him at the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Now, earlier in the story, in the parable of the wedding, I told you that I didn't know in the parable why the bridegroom was delayed. And in the parable, we don't. But we know why the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is delayed because the Bible tells us. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Bible says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Listen to me. For 2,000 years, the door of salvation has been open and it has been held open by the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has been patient about His promise. And what is the promise? The return of Jesus Christ. He has been patient about sending Jesus Christ back to this earth. And why is He patient? He tells us there. He says because He wants everyone, everyone to repent and come to Him and call Him Lord because He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed What does that mean? It means whosoever will come can find Jesus Christ and they can call upon his name for salvation and give him his life and then they will go into the wedding feast when he returns. But he is telling us here, the door is closing and when the door is locked, it is locked and it is too late. That's why the five who were not ready were standing on the outside of the door, banging, knocking, let us in, Lord, let us in, Lord, let us in. And Jesus says, Believe me, I don't know you. He didn't know them because they were not ready for his return. Jesus has placed us here to live our life in a time when the door is closing. But listen to me, it is not closed. How do I know? Because he hasn't returned. And his call is still the same. When Peter wrote this, God desires for everyone to come to repentance and no one to be destroyed. But they will only know that truth if we open our mouth and tell them. And why do we do that? To light the way for the bridegroom coming. That is why we should wake up. We should rouse from our sleep. In the mid-1800s, There was a man who lived by the name of Elisha Gray. I doubt anyone in this room has ever heard the name Elisha Gray. But in the mid-1800s, Elisha Gray set up an experiment. And he conducted an experiment that worked perfectly. And this experiment would have changed the world. All he needed to do was go down to the U.S. Patent Office and put a patent on his experiment. But he decided not to. He delayed. And he didn't go for two months After two months of delay, he went to the United States Patent Office and he tried to put a patent on his invention. But he found out that just two hours earlier, another man came with a very similar invention and put a patent on that invention. That man's name was Alexander Graham Bell. The invention was the telephone. It's still changing the world today. So why is it that all of us know the name Alexander Graham Bell and none of us know the name Elisha Gray? Because he delayed. 
He thought there was plenty of time. He didn't see the urgency of the moment. And that is the church. One of my favorite stories is an old fable about Satan training demons. The story goes like this. Satan is training three apprentice demons. And he asks them, how are you going to deceive the world? And the first apprentice demon stands up and he's proud. And he says, I know Satan, I'll tell him there's no God. And Satan says, it'll never work. We've tried it. Everyone knows in their heart there's a God. So the second apprentice demon stands up and he says, I know Satan, I'll tell him there's no hell. Satan says, that doesn't work either. We've tried it. Everyone knows there has to be judgment for sin. And the third apprentice demon stood up and he just said, Satan, I'll just simply tell them there's plenty of time. Satan said, oh, my son, you will deceive millions. There's plenty of time. Not according to Jesus Christ. Four times in Matthew 24 and 25, he says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. What does that mean? You're not going to know when he's coming and you're not going to be ready. Why? Because if a thief was coming to rob your house and you knew it the day before, what would you be doing when the thief got to your house? You'd be sitting on the front porch with a shotgun, right? But you don't know he's coming. That's the whole point. So he robs your house when you're least expecting it. How is Jesus Christ going to come back to this earth? Like a thief in the night. Four times in Matthew 24 and 25. And then we just read it in 1 Peter 3. He is coming like a thief in the night. Five will be ready and five will not. Which group will you be in? That's the warning of Scripture. So listen to the voice of God. Bow with me, Lord. We love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its promise. And Lord, right now, I just pray. That through the power of your Holy Spirit. You would speak. In places that my words cannot go. Lord, I pray that you would speak into the depths of soul. And into the recesses of our spirit. And you would awaken us from our sleep. Lord, we just give you these moments. And I pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.